live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. Hi, I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Noor Menninger. Anyone who's visited Tel Aviv has walked down the famous, sometimes infamous, Allenby Street. It's hard to miss this road that crosses Rothschild Boulevard, runs by the entrance to the Carmel Market, and leads to the Beach Promenade. Today, it's a must-see tourist attraction. But not so long ago, Allenby was still on the social fringes of Tel Aviv. Gadi Taub's best-selling novel, Allenby Street, named after the street itself, sheds light on the gritty underground scene of Tel Aviv, from its shadier dance bars to its strip clubs and brothels. Taub's book was later turned into a TV series for Channel 10. But Gadi Taub's resume does not end there. He received his PhD in American Studies from Rutgers University and is a senior lecturer at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He has written extensively for various news publications, including Haaretz, Yediota Achronot, Ma'ariv, and more. Taub also wrote the novel The Witch from Number 3 Melchit Street, which too was adapted for the screen. Gadi Taub joins us today to talk about his life, his career, and maybe a bit about his ideas. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. Also in cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, Israel's largest online social network community in English. Just look for the group on Facebook or visit them at secrettelaviv.com. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. And of course, we want to hear your feedback. So let us know what you think in the comments or send us a message on Facebook. Hello, Good Gadi. evening. And nice also another book in English called? The Settlers and the Struggle Over the Meaning of Zionism, which was published by Yale University Press. Okay. Hello. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. you for coming, Thank you Gadi. for having me. Um, so let's start with, because I, I have to, full, full disclosure, I haven't finished the book yet, but I started it about 100 pages deep. Allenby, that is. Yeah, Allenby. H- how did you come up with the idea <coughs> for this book? Where did it come from? I I wandered these um, areas for some 10 years, I guess, before writing it, not knowing how to put it in writing in any way. So I sort of gave up before I then decided to try. And I think that what solved the problem of how to write it for me was uh, my sudden acquaintance with James Elroy, the American novelist who writes this chopped kind of English staccato uh, style yeah Yeah. Um, he once said um, he says in his autobiography called My Dark Places he says that he wrote um, um, a thriller named White Jazz and it was 900 pages and the publisher says said to him there's no such thing as a 900 page thriller and he said so I went home and I took out the verbs (laughs) and and that sort of solved my problem because you know if you say in Hebrew Yarad Geshem it was raining, but in Hebrew it says um, rain fell down, and you take out the verb and you just leave the noun. Geshem. Geshem. Rain. Period. Yeah. It, it fell, right? It didn't rise. Yeah. So you understand. So I, so then I came upon, and, and it was funny because someone wanted to translate the book. I don't want to mention the name. And they said, the, publish, the American publisher said, but you can't write English in these short sentences. I said, I copied this from Elroy I stole it from James <laughs> Elroy and it was it was funny to find a Hebrew um, a parallel because Hebrew is l- a language for verbs it's, you know um, there was a famous um, piece by uh, Asafin Bari 
an essayist here who wrote a piece called Sfata uh, Pealim, Language of the Verbs. Mm-hmm. And he took this phrase from the Bible, which tells the, about nine months of pregnancy and birth in two words. Nachon, about Sarai Menu. Vatahar Vateled. And she got pregnant and she gave birth. But this is just two words in Hebrew, two verbs. Right. Um, but it doesn't take away for you in a, in, a, in a way from the dramatization, from like, you know, the rising action. I mean, you still do it so well, but how do you, because part of language is kind of like, just kind of like letting things go on and on. And then you rise to this climate. And so a lot of, I think, authors do it with long-winded sentences. And I tried this. I tried this with Allenby. And I, I wrote it in long winding sentences the first time. And this is why I said Elroy solved my problem, because all the attempts to write it in these long sentences ended up with the narrator in a slight unpleasant angle over the characters. Mm-hmm. It was like the, the narrator was smarter, mm-hmm. uh, had a... Had a uh, uh, Almost condescending. A, a condescending view of them as if they were exotic zoo animals. Yeah. And then I said, no, I want the, the consciousness speaking to you because it's not a first-person novel, it's a third-person novel. Yeah. So who, the, it's always the question. When you really write, the question is always, who is the voice speaking to you? Mm-hmm. And this doesn't have to be an, the answer doesn't have to be a person. It could be the collective consciousness of Allenby Street. Yeah. So I, the, I, somehow I felt that in these sentences, the, this, the, the speaking voice, the narrating voice, is like them. He's part of that world. And so he never comments on, for instance, they are extremely politically incorrect. You know, there are people here who are shocked. So one of the bouncers says, you know, hitting an Arab, it's both a mitzvah and a pleasure. Yeah. And in the book. In the book. Yes. And and the, no, this actually, I took it from an actual bouncer. Right. Uh, so so everybody expects the narrator to stop there and say, oh, no. No, the, the, the narrator doesn't comment anything. You right. bring the world. And, you know, I, I since I've been in these vicinities for so long, I noticed that in Israeli, in Israel's upper classes, people would never say such a thing. But they would also not have many personal relations with Arabs. And they I, would think it maybe also, it, some of them. They might. But I, I was sitting in this bar with, she, I think she was 22, 23-year-old girl. And she was explaining to me that the, the real, real, you know, extreme Kahana style. Kahana was, Rabbi Kahana there, she was, was uh, banned um, from running for the Knesset on, on account of racism. And eventually yeah. assassi- assassinated. And eventually assassinated. And she, and she explained to me how all Arabs should be killed and expelled, which was a strange thing to wrap my head around, because in what order? You know? <laughs> and, and then after the conversation went on, it suddenly, I suddenly realized that she, her boyfriend is an Arab, and they have a kid. So she has an Arab kid. What? I said, no, but he's nice. Yeah. But he's nice. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about this except for this. So this is amazing. You know, there's something extremely democratic and open about these places. And yet some of the opinion, and and it struck me because, you know, I've been a critic of political correctness for a while. And since my uh, area of expertise is is American history, Mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson used the N-word endlessly. And he had... Publicly? the f- uh, well these things were not not which, not in the which speeches. specifically were you? nigger oh, and he right. and he and oh, he, he was full <laughs> full mouth like i no other president you know yeah. he he would say he said about the 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 south uh, uh vietnam army he said these people 
wouldn't be able to pour piss out of the boot if you wrote the instructions on the heel. So he was, he was very, he was vulgar. That's, vulgar. And yet, that's creative though. And yet, it is creative, it's funny. <laughs> and yet, and yet, I don't think anyone did for African-Americans more than Lyndon Johnson with the possible exception of Lincoln. Right. So there's no correlation between uh, the way you express clean yourself. speech yeah. and actual good deeds. You don't so, think so? You don't think no, someone I who, who goes on racial diatribe, racist diatribes is... No, gonna... I, no I think what... what I mean, it, there, there, there is civility. I don't, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not uh, rejecting that. But I think that this has gone far beyond that. It's, uh, you know, I call it an attempt to correct the mirror instead of correcting the face. Mm -hmm. you, you, you're, not, you're not dealing with reality because you don't describe it anymore. You're just creating a description that will mask any, yeah. in, a, a, so any inequality. So, for example, you think that people's obsession in the last election with Netanyahu's statement about the Arabs, uh, Doharim, how do you say that? Noharim, uh, Noharim, he didn't say that. In you herds, that, in herds, they, herds they, yeah. you know that he didn't use that word. It's a, it's a myth. It's yeah. not the word he yeah, used, yeah. but the lie keeps that, perpetuating that, itself. Yeah, so his his but his expression his expressing the fact that the Arabs are going in uh, in masses in, to in droves, in droves yeah. to, to the, the uh, and the to left. the election uh, to the poll to the election booth. Yeah. Would in, you would in, say in, that and in buses financed by left wing yeah. NGOs. So you're saying that, but I'm saying the obsession with that idea of Arabs go and the prime minister expressing himself in those kind of terms, you 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 would say is going too far. Yeah, like I forget I, about that. No, I wouldn't express myself in those terms. It's about uh, to steal your beer. Um, I I can understand his worry that left voters are are voting in greater numbers than right voters and of course there's a racial tinge to it but you know you have to remember that this government which of, I, I i'm not a supporter of netanyahu at all but this government did for arab israelis arab citizens of israel more than any other government since Rabin. you know they changed massively the the mechanism of allocation in order to invest in infrastructure in the arab sector allocation of funds of funds yeah of state budgets right so that and, and this stems from pragmatic um, considerations. Its origins is in the budget department of the Treasury, where they said, you know, the future of Israel's economy depends on solving the problem of unemployment with Haredi men, ultra-Orthodox men, and Arab women. Right. This is going to be our problem in the future, and if we don't invest in that, then we're going to be in serious trouble. So this government, which is extremely right-wing, went boldly. It's called Decision 922. 922 and and just change the, the 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 mechanism of allocation so that for instance in the coming years the investment in transportation in the arab sector is going to be twice the percentage of the size of the sector relative to the population right the size of the sector is 20 percent it's going to get 40 percent of the transport ministry of transportation budget in order to fix the problem that they would have greater access to better jobs so this is also something Netanyahu did, and you know the left-wing press completely ignored it. I wrote about it a few times, and they yeah. kept saying, oh no, it will never happen, but it's happening. Right. So I got into fights there about people just denying that the thing was actually happening. Right. And right. Ayman Uda, who is uh, an Arab member of Knesset. He's the leader yeah. of the Arab party he, in the yeah, Knesset. Yeah, the, 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 the 
demanded from the treasury that there would be a website where the public can follow the transfer of funds and you can go there and you can check what they did and they're doing it mm -hmm. according to plan so you say you're not a supporter of netanyahu and but you also think that there is a systematic uh problem with the israeli left you write about it uh tons in haaretz and you've gotten a lot of backlash, a lot of uh, flack for it. That's a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> you love pissing them off. Um, <laughs> not that it's a compliment to, to compare, but I just watched the Netflix documentary about Roger Stone. Have you heard of him? No. You I have haven't. to see this. But he, they, the guy, the documentary, he was one of the people that they say kind of staged uh, Trump's rise. And they ask him at the end of the movie, uh, you know, what would you say to all the people out there who just loathe you? And he says, I revel in your hatred. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, you know, I don't know if you want to be compared there, but what I want to ask you is... No, what but is my father, you know, my late father used to say that there are people that if they, if they you can't count as your enemies, then you did something wrong. Yeah, that's what I just said. I, we got recently our first hate comment on one of the episodes, Occupiers or something like that, and I was like, yes. Congratulations. I know, it was, such a, it was, a, it was cause for celebration. But what I want to ask is what, what is, what is this systemic problem that you see and, and how can we solve it? Well, I think, you know, the, the part of the Israeli left has begun to live in a completely narcissistic world where politics are just an attempt to beautify yourself. They're not an attempt to change reality. And they're, they're, they've given up on convincing anyone. They just want to say the right thing to feel good about themselves. And so there is this discourse about um, the occupation, which has, is now dominating the left and is based on the problem of human rights. And I got into serious heat because I said at one point that, you know, if we leave the territories, then in, in, in the, the, there's a good chance that the human rights condition will seriously deteriorate it. Mm -hmm. deteriorate yeah. as it has in Gaza. You yeah, know, you stand in, for a in, unilateral uh, withdrawal. I, I used to. I okay. don't know how to do it now. But in Gaza, you know, when we left, then Hamas and uh, Fatah solve their differences by tying something over your eyes, like a flanelit. How would you say flanelit to a piece of cloth? Yeah, a piece of cloth. But, but they use it in the army for yeah. cleaning your guns. But they, so they put it on your eyes and throw you off a building. Yeah. So human rights seriously deteriorate under Hamas. It's probably the worst, one of the worst places to live in the world yes. right now. Yes, and Gaza you know it's Street. a totalitarian regime. We know this. It's mm -hmm. a totalitarian regime. Why do we need an, a new criteria? You can't. You're not allowed to express other opinions. It it, it has religious laws. It's terrible. So so I, I said in in Haaretz, you know, if we leave the territories, the, the human right argument leads nowhere because human rights will be worse. And then everyone wanted to shut me up and they said, but yeah, but we don't want to do this. We are not responsible for what Hamas does. We are responsible for what we do, which is a valid argument. But then don't pretend that you're a bleeding heart and you care about the Palestinians. What you really are saying is we do not care about the Palestinians. We just don't want to dirty our own hands. But some of them do say it. We had here Gilead Chair, for example, um, and he said those things. He said, I care about, about us. I don't really care about them. So let us separate. So yeah, so don't pretend that you care about them. So because as long as they you, don't pretend you're you, good with it. You are going to throw Palestinians to the dogs just so you can feel pristine. So say that honestly. Say that. Say I am willing for them to get all slaughtered right. as long as my hands are not dirty. And so, so this is not, you know, as a moral argument. Stop waving human rights. You're lying.
So it is. You think it is our responsible responsibility to remain there and be responsible for their lives and their fates? No, no. I think that we should care about uh, about ourselves first. I think there are lines that we should not cross. But I, but I don't want to. P- I'm, I'm not pretending that if we leave there, it's going to be better for them. But what Now, do you suggest? Then? I, so my, the goal in the long run is to separate, and it's also it's also for Zionist reasons because Zionism has been about one place under the sun where the Jews are not a minority, one place where they are a majority. I'm willing to pay for that in land. I'm willing to uh, forsake what is actually. The heart of the land of Israel, Judea and Samaria, which is the historical land of Israel, if I could uh, uh, guarantee a safe uh, Jewish majority in the long run, one place where the Jews exercise their right for self-determination. Also, who cares about Jerusalem? Like Tel Aviv is much better. And, you know, <laughs> it's, that's the heart of Israel right now. You, you know, <laughs> t- Tel Aviv in many ways is the heart of Zionism. Yeah. It is, because Zionism is a modern movement. Which Non-religious. Said, which, said, which said that Jews are entitled to be normal. This is a great novelty in Jewish history. We will not forever be righteous victims. We will actually just lead normal life. So if you read, I went to cover, there was in, in New York, in Mako, when I was, stu- was studying in Rutgers, I went to cover for Haaretz, then I, we had re- uh, good relations back then, uh, and, uh, to cover a, an event at Makor. You which and was who had good relations? You and Haaretz? Haaretz, and then we, ah, okay. uh, we had a fallout, and now we're, we're back. But... Um, I went to cover this event where Shmuli Boteach, Rabbi Shmuli Boteach, uh-huh. who is a, a rabbinical entrepreneur from Chabad, uh, wrote this book, Kosher Sex. And there was a panel where he was, he was to uh, have an argument with the first Jewish bunny in Playboy, the first Playboy Jewish <laughs> bunny, Miss Lizzie Volo. And I went to cover this with my friend who's, who's Catholic, and he said, don't bring me to an event like that anymore. I'll be anti-Semitic after that. This is, this is horrible. And you see, and, th- and for Israelis, this is incomprehensible. Because I, 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 living in America for four years, I knew what was behind all this. What was behind all this is yes. Our bunny, a Jewish shikse. It's a when you know uh, the 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 kashrut uh, yeah, stamp from Hugh Hefner. <laughs> she's she's certified beautiful. And then all the clashes around it because there was this this feminist woman who got up at the end, and and said, uh, she said, you know, Lindsay. I have nothing against you. You did what you can in this chauvinist culture, but you know, you Hefner is a pig, and ta da da and it objectifies women and all that. And Lindsay Vallow won the argument over her. This is an intelligent crowd, Upper West Side. Everyone was educated, but Lindsay Vallow won the argument. You know how? You know what her answer was? She said, she, first of all, she cried, which was halfway, half the victory. And then she said the argument was, you know, Hef is my friend. And my mom said that if you don't have no, something nice to say, then don't say nothing at all. And she won the argument. She just won the <laughs> argument. <laughs> the classic Jewish. Which is amazing. Yeah. She just basically guilt-tripped everyone because, to feel because bad. Everyone, you know, but it made me f- think about the diaspora, and it made me think about this passage in Amos Oz, in A uh, Tale of Love and Darkness, where, where he says he's this sort of half-galuti, diaspora-ish, a kid in Jerusalem, and he said that he heard that in Tel Aviv there are Jews who know how to swim in the sea, and they are tanned. 
And this was for him a shock. And I thought this is, you know, Zionism. Part of what it did is connect spirit and body again. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, Israelis feel sexy. <laughs> I mean, you walk it's down ridiculous. the street. It's it, but but it's <laughs> but it's true. You know, you 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 see very extravagant. Tel Aviv is like a metropolitan everywhere. So yeah. metrosexual and beautiful girls and tan and beach and Rio yeah. de Janeiro. And yet you make you make a distinction or you have made a distinction. I wonder if you still stand by it between what I saw fair, phrased. I'm not sure if you made it if you made it in English or in Hebrew, but I saw phrased as Zionism of liberty and Zionism of land. Yeah. Zionism of yeah. liberty, you say, is the Zionism which you know the the fathers of Zionism came to from Europe to Israel to find a place like you say where jews can be normal where jews have the freedom to exist and to you know freedom of religion and freedom of speech and whatever and and whatever i'm sure that's how they thought of it (laughs) and zionism of land which you kind of tie to the settler movement which is you know uh uh neo whatever uh um, nationalism you know which seeks to kind of have tie the jewish people to the land of israel well the zionism of liberty has a national component to it because you know i think that democracy is based in the right of national self-determination and this is the right to be yourself Mm -hmm. and to have a public sphere after your own culture and language and this i heard from a, a very old woman um i didn't even see her i saw this it was in a testimonial about the Holocaust that it was a video and and um, and the interviewer asked her for some reason that I can't understand what was the happiest moment for you at the end of the war which seems like a silly question if you came from Auschwitz you know Life. <laughs> when the camp was liberated but she answered a different answer she said so it was a smart question after all she said she said when I came to the Aliyah the immigration illegal immigration ship and saw a Hebrew sound sign over the door to the ship saying entrance and I remember thinking why and luckily the interviewer also didn't understand he said why is this a symbolic moment or and she said no I never seen I've never seen Hebrew letters that big Hmm. and I and it struck me that this is the whole story that she said Hebrew letters are something you hide it's under the table so now that we have gay liberation metaphors it's Jews have been closeted They've been in the closet for 2,000 years, and they can step out of the closet and have a pub and be Jewish in public. This is why America is the other place where a Jewish community thrives, because America's special brand of national identity allows for sub-identities with a public sphere. So you can have a JCC, and you could publicly be Jewish which is more difficult in Europe. You get bump threats here and there? Yeah, but, but, but you but. know, I, th- there is a structural <laughs> reason. I teach about this, so I, so, so I know why my students and, uh, sometimes are prone to misunderstanding. National identity almost everywhere depends on a common past. And in America, it depends on a common future. So it doesn't matter what your past is. So you can preserve your past. You can keep the story of the exodus of Egypt and that does not clash with your American identity, while German identity is centered around a historical narrative, which began with the barbarian tribes of which you are not a part. Right. So if you keep the story of the Exodus, then you know that you did not invade the Roman Empire from the north with the Germans. 
and and it does clash and it did clash this is where zionism but emerged the, you don't think the jewish history clashes with the american history i mean the americans the american future from... also because if you have the american if you have the jewish past and remembrance in the united states but how can you preserve it to the future if you blend into america slowly but surely sorry i, I guess no, it no, yeah you know yeah I, what he said <laughs> yeah exactly well you you remember the episode in this I, uh, I i have a lot of examples from the sopranos i i love david oh, chase and amazing. i think i think this is the best tv writing ever um so you remember how intensely they went to fight the native americans over columbus day oh yeah and then yeah. and then there's an episode where tony goes to italy and then he suddenly realizes that he is not italian <laughs> no he is an american with an italian accent yeah. and it's not the same thing he knows next to nothing about italy so people can preserve their past imagined or real and this is a very american thing to do mm -hmm. so both both sides fighting over columbus day are doing a very american thing and generally they do live together because they do believe in a common future so so i think these are the two places where um where the narratives don't converge now this is why the democratic worldview which centers around independence a zionism of liberty is a zionism of independence this is when ben gurion was asked to say what zionism is in one word he chose the word independence mm -hmm. so jews can be uh, in the language of our declaration of independence masters of their own fate this is the heart of zionism a zionism of land is going to cost us independence because a Why? zionism of liberty depends on a, a place where there is a jewish majority but, but if it, sorry, sorry <laughs> but ben gurion was not the father of zionism and the father of zionism had this idea to go to uganda and create a jewish state there and so we might as well i mean if we what i'm saying i guess is we cannot erase i I, or I'm, I guess I'm posing this to you as devil's advocate because I haven't settled it in my own mind, but we cannot he erase merits, the connection so. between the Jewish people and the Jewish land. Like if we erase that connection, then we have nothing to do here at all. Yes. Not it, even independence, not even liberty. Yeah, Herzl realized this. And this is why the Uganda proposal and his acceptance of it have been, I think, uh, misleadingly portrayed. He thought of this as a way station on the way to the land of Israel. Miklat Laila, mm -hmm. a shelter for the night, he said, because he, he got it into his head that the Jews are going to be slaughtered en masse in Europe. 40 years before it was done or so less 30 something years um, so Herzl thought of it as a temporary solution by that the, in, in the beginning of his career he thought about Argentina or the land of Israel and then as his career progressed he realized that Jews can live in many places but a Jewish state can only be in Brooklyn uh, Israel. So, <laughs> so he he uh, he understood the right thing, I think, and it's true that it can only be in the land of Israel, but doesn't necessarily have to be all over the land of Israel or over the whole land of Israel. Yeah. And this is why Ben Gurion refrained from conquering the West Bank in the War of Independence, and he explained why. Because at the end of the war, it was easy. We have already militarily we have won. So he could just take that territory. And when his commanders urged him to, he said no, because then we are going, not going to have a Jewish majority in the Knesset. 
This was his argument, which means it was going to be a binational state, which means that neither the Palestinians nor the Israelis would exercise the right for self-determination. So a Zionism of land is willing to sacrifice the principle of self-determination for the principle of returning to our land. By the way, exactly like the Palestinian right of return, which also defies uh, the, the idea of partitions, be partition, because they want to return geographically, unlike the Jewish state's law of return, which is not geographic but political. Mm -hmm. The Jewish law of return, return does not grant you a return to a certain place. It grants you citizenship in the Jewish state. And if we look at a macro level, though, Gadi, I think your political opinions that you ex express they symbolize something a little bit bigger that I've been contemplating about, which is your generation, and we see this phenomena a lot, people your age, born in the 60s, who were leftists, you supported Oslo, for example, in 95, you yeah. said it, who were leftists, who voted for the Labour Party, for, or, and even more left, for uh, decades, now becoming more and more right-winged, and uh, this we see it a lot now in Israeli media and society, and I wonder why is it, and how do you explain it? Well, first of all, we don't. Do you see agree? No, I this? don't. I don't okay. think we see it a lot. I think there are a few here and there. I also, you know, I, I it's not important this definition, right or uh, or left. And I keep, you know, I have these arguments that people say, oh, "You're not really left. You're not really on the left. You're on the right," and they think that this means they don't have to answer your arguments anymore. Right. Because if something is labeled right-wing, then it's wrong. Um, and I don't think of myself that way because I think I'm pretty much in the center because ideally I support partition in the long run and I am against settlement. Uh, but I don't think we can end the occupation right now. So I think we have to stay put. So, um, and I don't believe in peace. This is why I guess... What do you mean? I, I don't believe we have a partner for peace. I think the whole, I think we have been, you know, for, for the, the problem with what the left, the, the dogmatic left is doing, the dogmatic part of the left is with this, with this, peace is the problem. Stop chasing peace because peace has turned partition into a hostage and we can't separate from the Palestinians except by their permission which they will not grant us. So stop lying about this. They have been denying partition for since Oslo. The, every time there was a serious offer of partition, they have managed to somehow evade it. And this is, the, the, this is motivated by very bad intentions. Because if you read the Palestinians, uh, the Palestinians uh, school textbooks, and if you listen to what they say in Arabic, their long-term long hopes are kicking us out of here. They're speaking about us as the Crusaders. The Crusaders were here for a while, and now they're gone. They speak of us as the French in Algeria. They were colonists, but that ended too. So eventually, Zionism, which they describe as colonialism, would end too, and quote-unquote, the Jews will go back to Europe. That's their narrative. Which, which, which is the, their narrative of identity. So, but the Egyptians were different, and then we made peace. So sometimes maybe with Arabs they say and they do, and they. But, and, but, but here, but here they don't. They are. They have been systematically 
uh, undermining every attempt at partition. And I think we generally understand what their plan is. Their plan is to cling to us, not, a, not, not let us separate, until they drown Zionism in a demographic Arab majority. This is what they're doing. They're not going to give up the occupation. I wrote one of my first pieces for the Aritz op-ed page was after I talked with Bassam Eid. I don't know. You invite him here. He's an amazing guy. He's a Palestinian. Who is he? Uh, Bassam Eid. Okay. He's a Palestinian. Um, um, he has his own Human Rights Watch organization, and he left an Israeli one, B'Tselem, after they would not let him publish uh, uh, human right abuses of the Palestinian Authority and he's extremely brave because he started doing that and of course the security uh, apparatus of the Palestinian uh, Authority was going to put him in jail and where he would disappear except that the American uh, Secretary of State which was then Warren Christopher intervened mm-hmm. and they took and, and they they saved Basamid from the clutches of Jibril Rajoub literally and Basamid I was standing in this I was still smoking back then it was um, a year two years ago and uh, we were standing in the smoker cor- corner in this conference that we were somewhere in Europe um, I'm, I'm not allowed this this is um, not not something you mentioned but we uh, so we stood in the smoker mention corner, it mention and, it and he <laughs> said and he said uh, you guys, you keep talking about leaving the territories, but we're not going to let you leave. He said, why not? He said, who's going to protect us? And this was, you know, in the midst of Daesh, ISIS, and all the rest of it. And he said, you're, you're not understanding anything of what's going on here. The, the Palestinian Authority rests on, on Israeli guns. And funds. The mini- and funds are, come from, from Europe and, and the United States, or um, the majority of them. But, but, th- th- but we weed out Hamas for them because they can't do it because these are their own people. So it's easier for the Palestinian Authority, for Jews to do that dirty work. But if we leave there, Hamas will eat them up alive as they did in Gaza. So the Palestinian Authority, he said, is not going to let you leave the territories. Plus... We, are, we have a, a certified uh, a status of victimhood. We have huge international funds for being victims. We have UNRWA, the uh, agency for Palestinian refugees. We have all these perks of the occupation. Yeah, but on the, I mean, on the other hand, there is no uh, politician. I mean, you can't stay in that limbo. I mean, maybe unilateral withdrawal is not uh, the solution and is not good for the Israeli state or the Jewish people. And it's also not good for the Palestinian people. Or they won't let it happen. I but you need could. a politician to take uh, uh, one. You can't stay in the middle. So, I mean, what is the so do we do we continue to occupy? Because occupy sees, seems like not really a solution. You know, I, I'll tell you what, if I if it was up to me, what my political plan would be, because I don't think we can take the army out of there. I don't think so. The, this is, people have, people are not being serious about strategy. And, and they're thinking in terms of guilt feelings, which is irrelevant to politics. This is the bad Obama example. Go to Cairo and show us your bleeding heart. You are a superpower. And this was completely misconstrued in this region where American ally, America's allies just thought, this guy is not going to stand by us. Mm-hmm. So let's find other solutions. Oh, where, where's Putin? And so they, they turned to Russia. Yeah. Uh, but this is not a good guide to politics. So if you look at what's happening in the region and you see that nation states in the Arab world have been in the Arab world have been collapsing and you see a phenomena like ISIS 
and you think to yourself that the the um, that if we leave the West Bank, what if this, what if uh, Jordan, which is now tittering, its economy is in shambles, what if this collapses and chaos spills over into the West Bank? What are we going to do then? What we need on the other side of the border is not peace; it is order. This is what we need: some orderly regime that will be susceptible to uh, temptations and punishment. I mean, this is, these are not the good terms. Economic tamritzim. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, incentives. Incentives, right. Bad and good incentives. Yeah. It, it, and, we but, always... But, so, so we can't get out of there because it's not safe. Yeah. So what I would do, I, I'm sorry, I cut no, you, but okay. I'll just say my, what my political plan would be is finish building the barrier, mm-hmm. the security barrier around the blocks of settlement, which takes care of the majority of the settlers mm-hmm. which are in these blocks adjacent the, the border, the green line. Then there are about 90,000 more settlers outside the barrier. Deep inside the then, West Bank. Then we, we should not evacuate in uh, Gaza style, but we should A, give, uh, uh, legislate a, a, a generous compensation bill for anyone who would return to Israel proper. Then we should start dismantling the civil infrastructure and leave the the military infrastructure there and then tell them that in the future this is not going to be israel if you want to stay there you will give up your israeli citizenship and this is your choice you can be you can get a palestinian passport in you know when when the day of peace comes you will be a palestinian but now you're going to live under the military regime in judea and samaria because this will signal to everyone that in the future this is not going to be Israel. Mm-hmm. So it, this would be my ideal plan. Leave the army there, take the citizens out, or seduce them to come out from there. They can stay if they insist, and and wait for an opportunity for some orderly regime on the other side. I am not excluding the idea that Jordan would take over again. So it would still be a... The Jordanian solution. A Jordanian solution. The problem is, of course, that the Jordanians don't have much interest in that solution yeah there'll still be a two-state Rightly solution so, you know, though. we are we are the i shouldn't say asses mules of the middle east because every you know i think everyone is secretly laughing at us no one wants the palestinians no right. one this is just trouble they have undermined sovereignty in jordan until king hussein slaughtered about fifteen thousand of them mm-hmm. in september of 1970 they have left uh, uh, Lebanon in shambles after they c- undermined the state and now we have Hezbollah there and they do it everywhere they are but we were stupid enough to take on both Gaza and Judea Sam- and Samaria where the majority of the Palestinians are so mm-hmm. now we are stuck with it so I want to ask you about um, uh, and I'll try and think of while I speak a smart way to segue I, to sorry, it sorry I just but, uh, yeah. So stuck with it except Gaza, which you were smart enough to live. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no okay. Um, so uh, I want to talk about your, your PhD, which you, you did your your doctoral thesis in on American liberalism, if I understand. Liberalism, pragmatism, and postmodernism. And postmodernism. Now, do you uh, see some, some kind of correlation between the Israel's left and the state of the American left? Where do you see American li- liberalism? I'm assuming, I mean, from the way you're speaking right now, that it's about how American liberalism went astray 
Um, he, he did go astray. Yeah. Is it? I, did I it? it do is. you see the? Where do you see the 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 roots of it? Was it in the cultural wars of the 1960s? I mean, where do you trace these things, and how do you see the connection between? American liberalism and the Israeli left. Yeah, well, first American liberalism in one sentence. Uh, in one sentence. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry, you can yeah. take a few. <laughs> I will take. Uh, can I use a few drafts? For that one <laughs> yeah. sentence? Um, I would say that the turn to identity politics has generally um, to taken the left off tracks, off track, where it stopped talking about economy and started talking about cultural posture and it's started undermining solidarity so i've said to students and in america sometimes they want to kill me for that because it's politically incorrect i said that the turn to black power which is the beginning of identity politics was a disaster for african americans and i bring the example of the black panthers which is if you want to get nothing done in america then say you're a communist that and and, ha and and do it with a gun which is you know the black panthers are martin luther king is my shining example of a great american politician and malcolm x is a disaster because they let because for for the petit perks of pride they have given up on solidarity which also means assimilation and they have gone back to Plessy versus Ferguson, which is the shameful Supreme Court decision that said separate but equal. Mm -hmm. They have gone back voluntarily to segregation. This is a bad, bad move. And it also tore apart the New Deal coalition, which was, by the way, between Jews and blacks. So when Stockley Carmichael got elected to head SNCC, the student's uh, arm of the civil rights movement, he threw out all the white Jews immediately. And this is a stupid thing to do. And so the turn to identity politics has been the disaster of the left, ending with, with Hillary Clinton completely misunderstanding the, the, the problems that about half of the United States is experiencing mm -hmm. and not even realizing. You know, the Obama administration, one of the things that I think cost the Democrats the uh, losing the White House, not just to the Republicans, but to Trump, was that Obama let all the people that were behind the the bursting of the real estate bubble take away bonuses instead mm -hmm. of instead of going to jail because some 12 million Americans lost their homes because of Wall Street speculations and these people had to pay for it but 12 million Americans saw with teary eyes how these people who robbed them of their hard work are now going to take fat bonuses yeah. and buy themselves huge mansions. And they did not forgive that. And if you think that everyone who was angry is just a basket of deplorables, then you do not understand what is going on in American politics. If you want to yeah. go, if you want to understand what's going on in American politics, see who can afford cars. Because for, Amer for the American mind, there are, there, not all Americans live in New York. I, I, some people don't know that. <laughs> but uh, to Israelis, I have to explain this. But, but for Americans outside the, the, the New York, uh, which has a great public transportation system, Americans rely on cars. They are helpless mm -hmm. without them. If they can't buy a new car, this, is the, this means a lot. Yeah. 
So, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that to many African-Americans, it was more important to have a black president than, than to have a president that actually sought after the economical interests of the black community. But um, we, don't, we don't have time to talk about the, the series, the new series that's coming up. Uh, just in a sentence. So you have a new series coming up about cults? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's about, it's a drama series, series, I keep <laughs> saying that word wrong, people don't understand me, um, and, 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 and it's about the psychological dynamic of submission, and it's sort of subversive, because what I've tried to say is, Americans are not going to like this, because in a culture of liberty, you think everyone strives for autonomy, but there is a great temptation in submission. And we wanted to portray this temptation. This is a really evil guy. And they also, a cult leader. Yeah, and they submit to him because the, the desire to belong to something bigger than yourself is as authentic as the desire for liberty. And any chance your shows in the future, like Alan B or your, your novels, will be in English, maybe Netflix, maybe ah, something? I, I, I hope so. You know, they, they've just made, the, I, I just came back from Brazil a while ago where they're doing a Portuguese version of Alan B. Really? They call it Who Augusta. And they took me to this Augusta Street, which is exactly <laughs> Sao Paulo's Allenby. You know, it's a sleazy place with all the... I bet in Birmingham there's an equivalent. Of Allenby? Yeah. yeah, it's every street. <laughs> it's, th this is the one part region of America that I haven't been to. And I'm, to I'm ashamed because... You have to go. I'm, I'm, my PhD is in American history and I haven't been... To, to Mississippi the, or Alabama, and I, I really go. should. So you next time they they have yeah. really warm hospi hospitality. So I heard for Israelis, that's great. Yeah. Just tell them Aitan sent you, and they'll be, like, they be like, "That damn Jew sent you over here. Get out of here." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gadi, it was incredible. Your book in English that is available is called yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's its, its name? The Settlers and the Struggle Over the Meaning of Zionism. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was enlightening. I mean, I have it no words. Great. It, was a, it was great to talk to you guys. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much and good Thank luck. Thank you. Bye. Bye.